Hello, my gore-hungry horror hounds, and welcome to Cadaver Dog's podcast. I'm Rob Sercha, and joining me are David B. Jacobs and Devin Shepard, and we are Cadaver Dogs. How's it going today, guys? Ow! It is... I'm... Bleh, 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 bleh. It's going great, Rob. It's a great day. I'm not fucking up my words at all, and we haven't been recording for two fucking seconds. <laughs> I'm Devin Shepard. I'm a writer, director, and producer. You can see my latest work, uh, our feature film, A Nightmare Wakes, which is currently on Shutter and available on VOD and DVD at your local Walmart. Check it out. And I'm David B. Jacobs. I'm a writer, director, script supervisor, horror addict, and recently sunburned person. You can watch my short film, One Last Call, on Blind Raven Productions' YouTube channel. And I'm Rob Basercha. I'm a grip for Local 52, and I'm the owner and runner of Whimsy Productions, LLC. You can check out some of my short films under uh, Pod from the Crypt, my old failed podcast, where I have a lot of short, weird horror shorts. Now, now, it's only a failure if you say it's a failure. Uh, it's, it's only a failure if you're sunburned. <laughs> I am going to tell you that this week's movies are really fucking awesome. They might be the best movies we've uh, talked about so far. And giving us our first film is Devin Shepard. This is our first director to have won an Oscar that we've covered so far. I think we've had a few nominations, but our first film is what has become known as Guillermo del Toro's masterpiece, Pan's Labyrinth, a horrific fairy tale about war seen through the eyes of a child. Franco, Spain, 1944. Ophelia and her pregnant mother moved to the country to live with Ophelia's new stepfather, Captain Vidal. The captain rules, or in his eyes, protects the countryside from armed revolutionaries plotting to take over their land once again. Lonely and no doubt traumatically affected by family and war drama, Ophelia wanders the grounds and finds a labyrinth. At the center, a fawn, who believes she is the lost princess of the underworld. The fawn tasks her with three acts that she must complete before the full moon, so the underworld can open up and she can rejoin her rightful family and become who she is, a princess. So, the whole backdrop of this movie is war, and I feel like we can't really talk about a lot of it without giving some sort of the inklings of what's going on. So David, you prepared something to just like give us a brief overview of what the hell Franco Spain even means. Prepared. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not an expert on this. I am not a historian. However, that said, there was a Spanish civil war from 1936 until 1939. Spain had actually only just recently become a democracy. But in this wake, a lot of different political parties had all come up and were vying for control. On one end, there were a lot of communist sympathizers. There was the leftist popular front, which is the heroes of our movie. And there are the nationalists, who were at first led by Jose Sanjurjo, who started the war, essentially, trying to fight down the leftist popular front, who they said were communists. Sanjurjo died in a plane crash right before getting on the plane. People told him, hey, uh, you have like a lot of clothes on here. He said, well, I need to wear proper clothes. No cardio of Spain. And then there were too many clothes and his plane was too heavy. So he crashed. (laughs) (laughs) That's definitely actually I like that because I feel like there's a moment in the movie that that relates to that moment. Yeah. So. Francisco Franco took over as the new head of the Nationalist Party, and he led them to victory by 1939 through, like, just complete brutality. Um, An estimated 200,000 to 500,000 people died during the war. That's like 2% of the population. That's insane. Horrific. To solidify his power, he continued to execute 50,000 people Every year. It's somewhat argued whether they're really fascists or not, but for the sake of our argument, I think that Guillermo del Toro and Pan's Labyrinth is painting Franco Spain as fascist. That's at least how I'm going to be approaching it. Uh, To note, Pan's Labyrinth is set in 1944. Store's been over for five years, but it's still in these early days of Franco solidifying his power. Hmm. I think it's worth noting that they were supplied with not only military aid, but troops from fascist nations to Franco's forces. Yes. Right. So my first question for you guys about this movie, 
um, I think relates a lot to the history, at least metaphorically. In the beginning, Ophelia tells a story to her unborn brother concerning the flower of immortality on top of a mountain. And the only way to reach this flower was by crawling through a poisonous vine patch that infested the entire forest. But no one could crawl through this poisonous thorny patch because they would die in the process. So eventually the flower of immortality wilted. Do you guys see a significance for this story throughout the film? Yeah, I mean, first of all, what a beautiful story and just like beautiful imagery. I think it it feels just like such a representation of war because in order to win what you want the most out of life or like freedom or just like, I guess in, in this sense, because since it's talked about in the movie, um, your offspring, your, your, what's it called? Uh, legacy? Child? You know, your lineage, lineage, right? Lineage. 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 Yeah. yeah, to keep your lineage going, you know, you're going to have to fight and you're going to have to face death. And what they say in that fairy tale, too, is like so many men became so consumed by the fear of death that they refused to go near the thorns in the first place. Um, and we see that constantly throughout the film is everyone, all the adults just fear death and won't fight. Yeah, I mean... I think the most important part of the story is that no one even tries to get the rose. Mm -hmm. Is that people are just like, well, I'm not going to risk that. And to me, the takeaway from the story is that you should. That it it is worth risking death to receive this immortality. Which is almost against most fairy tales. Because usually the fairy tale is like, oh, the, the price to pay for immortality. And is it really worth it? And this story is saying, no, it totally is worth it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like that motivates Ophelia more than anything. Because when she's told she's a princess, there's not really a moment of her being like, do I even want this? Do I want to leave my... She's just like, yeah, no, I... that sounds great. I'll do that. She's crawling through that fucking thorn bush. Yeah. 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 Literally at some points. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't feel like I have a real answer to this because I'm kind of conflicted on the whole thing. Because at the end of the story, the thorn bushes infect the flower. The flower wilts. It becomes poison. And I feel like you can argue that a lot of these regimes that are vying for power to, you know, coalesce their lineage, their legacy over the whole nation, what they're doing is crawling through this thorn bush and becoming poison themselves. Like Vidal becomes poisoned. Like he's a sociopath or psychopath, whatever. He's just a sadistic bastard who kills all these people to solidify his control. And he's completely consumed with his legacy. That's why he tells Carmen... You can tell that he views her strictly as a vessel for his legacy. Oh, yeah. And that's why he's so obsessed with this watch. And he tells the doctor, how's my son doing? And the doctor says, how do you know it's a son? He says, don't fuck with me. (laughs) (laughs) And he laughs when he says it. It's like the only time he laughs in the whole movie. He shows like no emotion at any time. He's like smashing a guy's face. And you look at his face. He's just so casual. He's, He's not enjoying it or being disgusted by it it's just like business to him this movie is gory this movie is very gory so i've only seen this movie once and it was when i was a teenager at some point and now i remember why i was so scarred because the horrors that they show of oh my god so much killing and it's not just like it's not like body horror i mean there's a few moments where like you see blood and people get slashed but it's more of just like it's really Vidal's reign and how many people he kills in a single film. Like, do we know the body count in this movie? How many people he shoots? It's insane. A lot. A lot. Almost every named character dies except for Mercedes and her brother and the baby. And most of it is Vidal. It's also just the way they display violence, considering this is a fantasy film, is very realistic. You know, there's no shy away from it. The camera shows you how despicable violence is. Um, one of the worst scenes is when he's torturing the stutterer. Mm-hmm. And, and that one they cut away. Yeah, but at the end they show his hand all mangled, yeah. which makes it worse. There's like, after everything they've shown you, the fact that they cut away is like, oh my God. Just not even able to comprehend what what is happening in that moment. I mean, I leave this movie wondering if I would crack. 
Dude, are you kidding? I would probably crack. I would sing like a canary. <laughs> I might crack mentally too and say a lot of nonsense. They'd be like, stop fucking talking about zombie movies. Just hit me yeah. with a hammer. And I'm like, I'm like, did you know George Romero? And they're like, shut the fuck up. Bah, 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 bah. Um, now that we've digressed, I wonder how this compares to fairy tales. And I think that if you are to go back and really talk about fairy tales in originality, they're often very, very gruesome. I mean, think about Hansel and Gretel, how that ends. It's about little kids frying an old lady in an oven. And I think even going back to the thing with the rose and the thorns that uh, from the Lofiolis first story, I think even that's part just setting the tone of like, hey, but just so you know, our fairy tales are not what you're going to be expecting. This is not a fucking Disney movie. And I have a question about the fun. So we're set up with the fun through Ophelia's eyes and we're supposed to see him as the gateway to this world that she really wants to be a part of. And then we start seeing things that we should start doubting the fawn. Like Mercedes tells her, my mother always told me fawns were tricksters. You shouldn't trust fawns. We see the fawn doing some questionable things. Um, I mean, especially when the fawn asks Ophelia to, you know, steal her brother, her baby brother and take him to the fawn. I just, what is the point of like having to disbelieve the fawn and then believe him again and then not believe? And he tells her you're a princess. Oh, you finally returned. And we've been waiting for so long and all of our other portals are closed by now. This is the last one. He never gives her any reason to actually believe that. He never offers any evidence that this world is real or that she's a princess. Like, we have no reason to believe she's a princess except for taking the fawn's word on it. He just says it, and she's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But she's finding fairies. He's giving her magical stuff. He's giving her chalk that she can draw a line on a wall and enter another realm, another dimension. There is a lot to suspect that there's something to it. She's the only person who sees a fawn. But I think what's interesting is that at the end, we find out that she shouldn't have believed the fawn because he was lying to her. It was a big plan. It was a big test. And it was, it, it was kind of like the test of the thorn uh, or, the, or the rose. Like, how do you reach the rose of immortality without losing your humanity in the process? Right. And that's why she was given the, uh, the reward of becoming a princess after she died. But at the end, when um, all of that is revealed that, oh, this was just a test. I mean, that's after we can presume that she has died. And so we're not sure whether or not that's actually real. And I think we can get a little bit into it that if you guys want, if you think this is real or not. But before that even happens, the font says something very specific. He talks about obeying. And we have seen Vidal say obey constantly throughout this film. And it made me think in these last moments before, you know, joy is given and, and we can still be doubting whether or not the font is good or evil. It makes me think, is the font representative of Vidal in some way? And if so, how? How does that work with this storyline? Absolutely. Uh, so he says, this is when he's telling her to get her brother. He says, will you do everything I say without question? She's like, yeah. Then he's like, okay, go get your brother. And she's like, my brother? What? And he, he just puts his finger up and shushes her. He says, no more questions. And there's a line earlier in the movie. This is when Dr. Ferrero assists the stutterer in suicide so that he can't give anything away from torture or be tortured any longer vidal comes back and stumbles upon this and this is the other moment when vidal actually to me shows some emotion he's like why didn't you obey me but he's not angry or disappointed he's like he's confused he literally he doesn't understand that someone could disobey him and then ferrero replies To obey like that, for the sake of obeying, only people like you can do that, Captain. And I think that is a direct parallel with then the fawn telling Ophelia to do everything he says without question. Yes, but what is the purpose of that tie? Because the doctor dies due to his uh, humanity, because he can't give it up. He cannot save someone. I feel like this movie presents a lot of like really deep, moral problems and one of them is like the hippocratic oath that doctors should always maintain life and he will not maintain this guy's life just to live on in suffering and the ophelia has to do something similar she has to give her own life in order to save her brother at the end mm-hmm. and yeah 
what this movie is saying is we, we kind of reach salvation by maintaining our own humanity at any cost, that it's important. Ophelia wants to be this princess. She is dreaming of this perfect world where none of these problems exist. Her biggest problem, of course, is Captain Vidal, this man who she's supposed to call father, which is so fucked up. And she wants to leave all this for a perfect reality. But that fantasy is not better. The fantasy is just as cruel. It's just as evil. We see hints of that throughout the movie. Uh, the fawn is playing mind games with her when she eats the grapes. The fawn says, you'll never be princess. And he leaves, you'll never see me again. And then like a day later, he's like, hey, I came back to give you one more chance. Well, yeah, I think... Uh we have to ask whether or not you guys think the uh, fairy world is real in this movie. I do. And I'm yeah, I, I agree. It is too. Uh, also, there's a lot of like logical loopholes that would be presented if it were not real. For instance, um, she would have never been able to steal her brother had she not had the magic chalk and she wouldn't have been able to save her mother had, if she didn't have the magic root. She didn't save her mother. Well, she did momentarily until Vidal ended up, uh, inadvertently killing well, her which you really can't blame him for that for killing her by taking the magic group i mean you don't think magic groups are well and it, well we can't say that she was saving her either because that's a that's happenstance the doctor was there the doctor was alive he was doing stuff to help her and yeah the doctor's like oh it's weird that you feel better but we can't like attribute that to the mandrake under the bed and well, i think i think we can once the doctor dies immediately after the doctor dies is when the son is born and the mother dies during childbirth. So we can maybe assume too that like the mother was only ever going to survive if the doctor was able to treat her. Actually, yeah, I guess you're right. So we can kind of blame Vidal for killing the doctor prior to the childbirth because perhaps him being there would have saved her. Oh, that's interesting. So we, we haven't heard Devin's opinion. Uh, uh, David and I agree. We think the fairy realm is real in, in the reality of the movie. I want to believe that it's real, and I think Del Toro has come out saying that the fairy portions are real, but there's one scene that makes me question it, and that scene is right after um, the second task that Ophelia has to do, which is when she goes to see the pale man, um, and when she draws uh, uh, with her chalk and opens up the other realm, and she gets the key and unlocks a door to then get a dagger. Right after that um, is when we see Vidal and his troops at a train. The revolutionaries stole weapons Mm-mm. from Vidal. They didn't right? steal anything. They were just stalling. They exploded the train as a diversion so they could attack the town and steal things. But, okay, so what? what is this, the lock that they opened then? That was the storage for, like, weapons and medicine and stuff. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, you're right. But it just yeah. they didn't steal anything from I, the train. I think I see where you're going, Devin. Yeah, so so the the revolutionary stole all these weapons and Vidal goes to where the weapons were stored and sees that there is a lock that is has been opened and it was opened by a key. It wasn't broken open. And we find out later that he has that key and that Mercedes he thinks that Mercedes took it. But we don't know if she took it or not. She never admits to it. it got me thinking that maybe Mercedes is playing this fantasy world and using ophelia to help the revolutionaries whether or not ophelia is aware of that but she's like using it as this game to okay go steal the key for me now unlock this thing take dagger which is a weapon you know like those parallels are there would that make mercedes kind of a villain i don't think she's a villain i just think that she may not be 100 percent angelic in this sense you know no matter what mercedes is fighting for the revolutionaries that's her number one cause and obviously she doesn't mean any harm to ophelia but she talks about when she goes back to her brother she talks about she she feels guilty because she's been undercover under vidal and he's trying to get her out of there but it sounds like she isn't doing too much she is spying but she isn't doing anything too active because she doesn't want to blow her cover and she feels guilty about it. She's like, I can't believe that I'm working with this terrible person. I, I, I don't, I don't know if she would be manipulating Ophelia right under his nose. I think that would be too risky. 
I, I, I don't think that would even make sense for the revolutionaries. I, I think it's an interesting idea, but I... It I is. And it might be a parallel that is intended. I, I think there is something to stealing weapons from under the, uh, you know, like, hegemonic man's Especially uh, under rule. the fascists, which... Can yeah. we talk about the Pale Man, actually? That's what I was going yeah. towards. Yeah, yes. the Pale Man. So so I, I see the Pale Man as, as two metaphors. Uh, hegemonic rule uh, in general, as in, like, fascism. And uh, on the other side... I think Del Toro has said explicitly that he is a metaphor for the Catholic Church. Can we do fascism first because it's easier? Yeah, we can do fascism because <laughs> it's easier for. Well, I actually think the Catholic Church is simpler because it's it's more direct symbolism. I never came to that. I was I I I, on, I wrote down. I'm ripping this off from a YouTube comment from someone named Mel McGuire. This is their description: an elderly pale man. Blind to the world around him who feeds on those weaker than him. He has an entire table of food that he has no interest in eating himself, but will kill anyone hungry enough to try and take from him. Eyes in his hands to show he can only see the things he desires, and images of himself surrounding him to show he takes pride in the horrible things he does. A pretty fitting monster for the setting of a fascist regime in Spain. Mm. And I'm just like, yeah. Okay, so now... Let's compare that to the Catholic Church, which has a hierarchy of priests and uh, cardinals and bishops and whatnot, who surround themselves in all this wealth while at the same time condemning anyone who succumbs to their desires. And he also has the stigmata on his hands where he puts the eyes. Oh my God! Which is of Christ. And he also feeds upon children. And if we were to watch the news with all the oh my God. vast swaths of evidence coming out against the priesthood in the Catholic Church in particular of how they prey upon young children, we can see the parallel. It's people who are reaching out to the priests because they're underprivileged and then being preyed upon. But what does that do in the context of the movie? It's not specified in the movie and nothing Christianity related is ever really directly brought up. But... Franco Spain was a, I think, Catholic government. And mm. it was, and if there was not separation of church and state, Catholicism was the explicit, this is the religion. I think Catholicism, that, that would make sense. Yeah, it was Catholicism, definitely. And it, it, it was also a mandate, right? So it was yeah. punishable if you want. I see. Which is interesting because Ophelia, it, you can interpret her fantasy as religion. So she is clearly not catholic if she is talking about i'm the princess of the underworld but you mean <laughs> hell no the underworld right right yeah. well, the, well the underworld is fairies and paganism in general and and that is present in the background of this film and the symbolism is related to that although i agree it, they don't really talk about it a whole lot even the fact that she seals grapes that can be seen as a religious symbol uh it's wine it's the blood of christ um mm. And the stained glass pictures of the of the pale man eating children. I mean, I know it's also partially a reference to Kronos eating his children, that famous painting. Yes, it is. From Greek mythology. Mm. But also just the fact that stained glass is a religious symbol as well. No, I think I think you're both right. I think you make really good points, and I think it could be seen either way. I saw it as something much simpler, which is just... The Pale Man is War um, doesn't really go into much of like the table and the feast, although, um, you know, you can continue making parallels to Vidal when um, he's sitting there eating food. Um, oh, yeah. He's sitting in the same position. as right. Vidal. Yeah, he's sitting in the same position. They're eating all the food. And then, you know, that's also we're seeing people go hungry and they're talking about how they're lessening the rations to just one per family. Um, very much see, see a lot of the parallels there. But I mean, the eating of the children, that's a lot of what war does, I believe, and says yeah. stri straight up like what this, this whole, the whole film is a, a story of war seen through a child's eyes, seen through a child's point of view. Um, and we can see how, how war just destroys children and destroys any semblance of like a loving and joyful life. And mm -hmm. um, if you look at the pale man as eating children, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's right on the money, actually. Maybe even more so than the Catholic thing, which I think they both. it's a metaphor for both. It all fits. I think they're all connected, too. 
Right. Well, so so the nationalists, which is what Franco led, was actually a revolution against the Spanish state initially, and they took over. So what they did is they presented this utopian ideology, which is the feast. But in order to enter into that, you have to give up your children as recruits for war. Right. So this is kind of a movie that's the, the outset is a revolution and on the inside is also a revolution against the revolution that won. <laughs> <laughs> Which could be Ophelia being a revolutionary. But she's going to the underworld. But you're comparing the underworld to like Greek mythology underworld, whereas like the fairy underworld is a different type of underworld. We think. Yeah, but I mean, we got we talked about this a bit in the hollow as well. Like, is any underworld like is, is that ever a good place in any religion? Well, that's why the princess left in the first place. She wanted to see the sky and she wanted to see sunlight. And unfortunately, when she left, she starved to death because the real world is harsh and cruel. And that's also why I think the ending isn't real, because there is sunlight. Oh. No, it's it's a magical place. It could have been gold. It could have been anything. It's a totally magical realm. You can't base it on that. And I, I think she really went there. And I think the fawn was real. And I think that if you are going to say that the fairy realm is real, then at the end you have to accept that she got what she deserved. I think the fawn was lying. I don't think she's even the princess. I think she's just someone who stumbled upon this and put a stone back together. And the fawn said, yes, you do. You're the princess. Come here. And I think she failed the tests, so she didn't go. I don't think that it's real. And I think it's because of everything we've been talking about. It's just like, life sucks. Like, fucking life is hard. I mean, the mother, that's all she says throughout this whole entire movie. She tells her daughter, life really fucking sucks. It's really, really hard, Ophelia. Like, you're in for it. Like, this is this is not going to be a good time. You need to wake the fuck up. Like, you can't keep thinking and believing in these fairy tales because life is going to kick you in the ass. Okay, I want us to go on to our next film, but this is probably a good place to stop and hear a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Chris Anderson, but if you went to high school with me, you could call me Shibby. And I'm Ethan Sereski. And we want to tell you about our show, Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour, the best podcast you've never heard of. We know this is true statistically because we don't have very many listeners. But what we do have is a ton of hilarious episodes about all manner of creepy monsters, horrifying cryptids, and supernatural phenomenon. So if you've ever wondered about the origin of the mysterious Beast of Gavadon, Or if prime Shaquille O'Neal could take the Chupacabra in a fist fight. Or if the Bermuda Triangle has the capacity to love. Tune in and find out. Just remember... Don't get spooked! Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour. Available now on all preferred podcast platforms. Welcome back, Horror Hounds. We have our second film for you. It's a little bit more recent, but goddamn, it's a good fucking movie. David is going to give us the rundown. Jumping forward 44 years. 1988, Tehran, Iran. Shida previously left her studies to protest the Islamic Republic during the revolution, but now she wants only to continue on the path to becoming a doctor. Because of her past political activism, however, she is not allowed. Her husband is drafted into the war with Iraq, leaving Shida alone with her daughter Dorsa, in a city that is being bombed every other day. Other civilians are fleeing the city, but Shida and Dorsa can't leave until they find Dorsa's missing doll. You see, their apartment is haunted by Jin, who seek to manipulate the child into abandoning her mother, who they claim can't protect her. And if the Jin have Dorsa's doll, her treasured possession, they will always be able to find her. This is Under the Shadow, written and directed by Babak Anvari, and released in 2016, and Jumping from Oscar-winning director to this movie won a BAFTA for Outstanding Debut. Hey! We got so many awards this this week. So just like the last film, it is prudent to give at least a cursory uh, explanation of the underlying historical background. So between 1978 to 1979, following the rule of the Shah, the people revolted and took over the city of Tehran and the rest of Iran which unfortunately resulted in the rule of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Following his rule, 
a border dispute with Iraq surrounded the border region, which historians claim could be due to the oil resources there, but was also probably pressures of the revolutionary ideas spreading over into Saddam Hussein's territory in Iraq. The Iraqi forces initially made great progress in the land battles, but lacking air support, the Iranian forces rallied and fought back using child soldiers as young as 13 a lot of the times in what was kind of like a, an anachronistic, very bloody warfare of trench warfare. Ugh. So really disgusting stuff. And in retaliation, the Iraqi forces used mustard gas and reports said they even used chemical weapons on their own people, the Kurdish stands. Following the pushback of the Iranian forces, Saddam Hussein sued for peace, but was rebuffed by the Ayatollah and the international community condemned the use of chemical weapons. This land battle went on for eight years, from 1980 to 1988. Our story takes place in 1988, following all these events. So, oh my gosh, this movie, I, I guess my first question is, with all this history and with all this background and these dark supernatural elements of the film, what to you does the title mean, Under the Shadow? What shadow? Who's under it? What's happening? Well, I, I think it's two things. I think it's indicative of the oppressive regime of the uh, caliphate in Iran. And I also think more broadly, it's the entire tradition that is oppressing our main character who wants to be a doctor. And one of the heartbreaking first scenes of the film, she went back to her university and was told by the head of the university that in no way, shape or form will she ever be allowed to continue her studies because of her past um, political behavior, mm -hmm. which could be construed in two ways. So there was a lot of uh, feminist uh, marches and things around 1979 following the revolution for fear that women's rights would be diminished if Sharia law were to be upheld. And unfortunately, it was upheld. And uh, it was mandated that women had to wear the hijab, which is one of, I think, seven or eight different forms of uh, Islamic headdress for women. But that's the one that is mandated in Iran. Mm -hmm. There's a conversation she has with her husband. Uh, he seems to be sympathetic to the same political ideologies as her. But while she left her studies to do these protests in whatever form she did, it's not specified, he did not. He continued his studies and even told her, hey, you're making a mistake. You should keep working to becoming a doctor. And the fact, when you look at the history, realizing how much of it is about women's rights, like, well, yeah, of course you would say that. This isn't about you, man. <laughs> well, they have opposite stories because he says that she tried to guilt trip him for not being more political. But then he's saying, well, you know, because you're running around being political, you can't work. And if I were to do that, we would be poor. So there, there is a clash between the two of them. And he says things that could be misconstrued. Like he tells her maybe it's for the best when she can't be a doctor, which I don't think that's him stating that he thinks she shouldn't be a doctor, but that given the insane political turmoil and the very real threat to their lives that are at stake, maybe it's better that she's watching her child rather than on the front lines being a doctor somewhere. Well, let me ask you this. Where in the film... Does she say that she wants to be a doctor? She says it's her dream in that same argument. And he yeah. rebuffs does her she? by saying, yes, yeah, she does. And he rebuffs her by saying, no, it's your mother's dream. And she gets real pissed off at that. Yeah, because I kind of think I believe him. I don't think like. <laughs> I did not expect you to say that. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah, no, I feel like, I mean, to me, this whole entire movie really shows a woman who is being told how to live her life mm -hmm. in, in every aspect she has no control she she has no choices that she can make on her own um until the end when she chooses to leave well actually the first choice she makes is choosing to stay really yeah which is a really bad choice that's an awful choice for so many reasons yeah but it's something that she can actually it's the only choice that she can make that she's in power of the other choice is leaving and going to live with uh, her parents-in-law, who are more traditional, they say. Yeah. Um, and who's going to give her, you know, just going to tell her how to live her life again. Yeah, I didn't and, even put that together, that it, that her parents-in-laws, her, her in-laws would enforce how she lives her life even more. I didn't even, that makes sense. Yeah. 
And the first scene is this man at the, uh, who we presume is like the head of the medical school or something is telling her, you can't, you can't study here anymore. But I saw it as a perfect metaphor to see her not being able to make choices because it's, you know, the backdrop of what we've set up as the history right here where women are not allowed to be making the, any choices, especially in the way that they're allowed to, to even dress, you know, um, mm-hmm. and study and live their lives. Yeah, I thought it was such a terrifying film to show how it was to be a woman during that time. Still now, to a yeah. large extent or to the same extent? Um, Probably not the same extent, but yeah, still very much now. I mean, I showed you guys that video on... Uh women showing their hair in Tehran. I also, I went to college with some Iranian uh, women and students, and uh, they were telling me about how uh, concerning it was to show so much hair and that women were doing it more often and you could be arrested, which, God, that's such a riveting scene in the film. When she's running down the street, barefoot in her pajamas, holding her child terrified, and the cops show up with machine guns, and say, what are we, in Switzerland? And arrest her, instead of being like, what's wrong? How can you not ask what's wrong? And you know, I think, Devin, you actually, you convinced me that, yeah, it probably was her mother, and that's part of the shadow she's under for unable to live her own life. It's probably her mother telling her what to do. I never thought too much about the title. I always just assumed that the shadow was literally the veil. Mm. There's another one. There are two Jin. One of them looks like a man. The other one, and, and that's the one that's like doing most of the threatening stuff. The other oh. one is a woman, and that's the one that's talking to the child. And it's literally, it's just a hijab. It's not even anything underneath. It's just a hijab. Well, it, it's actually the bigger outfit, which I don't know the name of. But it, but it's even more uh, extreme headdress outfit. Yes. It's, it's the entire cloak. The full body. Which, yeah, talk about a slow burn movie, but such an effective one. But all the imagery and stuff is just so creative. Except for the black goo, which fucking sucks. I've seen that too yeah. many times. <laughs> well, it's a shadow. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Is it goo or is it oil? Oh my god. Oh my god. I never thought about that. <laughs> oh, it's oil. Oh. We literally just talked about this, right? Oh, it's actually pretty it's good. It's oil. Oh, the wow. The symbols okay. in this film are not subtle. <laughs> they're not, but they're fucking cool. Yeah. And they work. They're effective. The gin, it's not, we said it's not a job, but it, it's a headdress. It looks terrifying. Yeah. And also a lot of it is that it, it's telling Dorsa, I would be a better mother. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's not a good mother. You should come to me instead. And that's like the, the religious regime is sort of trying to take her away. It's trying to turn her into this. The showing of the motherhood in this film, I think, is so well done, or at least what I perceive that motherhood is. And I think we should note the director, um, Babak Anvari, he wrote this film based off of his mother, essentially. Um, he grew up in Tehran during this time and did have to like go down to the basement and hide from bombs. Um, and he asked his mother, and she was like, I, I was so scared the entire time that you were growing up. And I think a lot of my fears and my anxieties landed on you and your brother. And Babak actually says, you know, he still has night terrors about this time. And that's a lot of what is in this film, um, which is so scary. But then I see a lot of the of the director coming to terms with what his mother was probably having to go through. And I mean, going back to my point earlier, motherhood, the entire time that you're a mother, other people are telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing. And... When you become a mother, a lot of your identity and your individuality is seemingly stripped because you have to then take care of a child. How can you also take care of yourself and live a life that you choose to live and be be individualistic, which is so much of her character? We see her fighting with that constantly. I mean, her, um, her fighting with her child, Dorsa, the entire time of like, it almost seems like she doesn't really agree with being a mom i i think it shows how difficult it is to be a mother yes and i think it's difficult in everything so a lot of people draw parallels between this movie and the babadook this is better but what's i think even more interesting about the oppressive nature of the regime in this movie or, or more overpowering about it is just how traditional it is because it's all backed by this underlying moral religious current so even the jinn themselves they're brought by not only the bomb it seems like they come on the wind. When her neighbor's telling her it's jinn, she's like, jinn aren't real, those fairy tales. She goes, yes, they are. They're in the Quran. The Quran talks about them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if we talk about, for the audience, our listeners who don't know, uh, jinn are kind of like this umbrella term of all kinds of supernatural spirits and things that predates Islam, but is also within the Quran talked about. And in the Quran, it's God created angels, then the jinn, and then later people. Do you think they're real in the movie? Oh, yeah. I actually don't. Really? No, I don't think they're real. I think they're completely metaphorical. I think they stand for the tradition and the religious regimes and just everything suppressing her ability to express herself and choose for herself and her free will. Yeah, I I haven't come up with my answer yet. I think because it's it's, the reality of it is I agree with Rob that these aren't real, but... I don't know. It, it's it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter to me because the whole movie is a metaphor and it's just mm-hmm. trying to show in a unique way the terrors of what it felt like to grow up and and to be in this time and it's hard to show that in a real setting. So why not add some supernatural element? And it, you, it's kind of like a dispension of disbelief. I think they're absolutely real. Well, the movie makes sense if they're not real. To an extent, I mean, you don't. I don't know who would have cut up the doll if it wasn't the gin. Um, I don't think the daughter threw the VCR, threw the the VHS tape, the John, Jane Fonda tape in the trash. I think that was the gin taking the tape like, oh, here's a valuable possession. Oh no, you don't actually value this that much. It's not useful to us, so they throw it away. And I, I, I mean, if the gin weren't real, they would have just left. It's, it's like. It's almost like a different perspective on Pan's Labyrinth, that Ophelia is Dorsa in this case, being tempted by another world, and Hmm. Sheeta is not seeing it for most of the movie. Then later she starts to realize, like, uh, maybe this is real, but she doesn't want to admit it. She believes it before she admits that she believes it. No, I, I don't agree with you, because it's not another world. See, in, um, Pan's Labyrinth, the other world is just a separate world that exists alongside the I mean, like, the figurative world. world. I mean, like, a, right. another world. It's but, a different thing, and they are trying to take her daughter away from her. Right, right, where there are, like, similar themes that are happening in Pan's yeah. Labyrinth as the other world, but they're not identical. It's not just a pure metaphor for this. Right. There are also logical loopholes in Pan's Labyrinth that could not have happened had she not had magical chalk, etc. Whereas in Under the Shadow... Everything that happens is a pure metaphor for something that's happening to her child. Like the other woman who is like a traditional, uh, a traditionalist who thinks the regime is good is trying to draw her away from the ideals her mother holds, which is like feminist, uh, enlightenment, Western kind of thought of free will and whatnot. And that seems to be what this problem is. Like she's under the shadow and she's trying to protect her daughter from it. And I also highly disagree that she would have left because she had the option to leave and everyone was telling her to leave before the djinn showed up and other people were leaving. And she said, no, she did not want to leave because like Devin said, this was her one choice that she could stick by. Exactly. And I wanted to point that out, David, because you said in your summary, they can't leave until they find this doll. And I didn't get that at all because I agree with Rob that like she didn't leave because this was the, her home. Like she said it, this was her home. This is the place where she has the power and that she doesn't have to go back to someone else's life. She has her own here. I was ellipsing. There, There is a point in the movie where she says, okay, we're going to leave now. And then Dorsa says, but we can't leave until I, we find my doll. And she just like, oh my God, fine, we'll find the doll. And she only goes along with that because she is starting to believe in these djinn now. Yeah, yeah, but I think that's her attachment to this um, oppressive regime or the shadow, right? And that even the ending of the movie, like, she cannot escape this thing. Everything she's trying to do is escape the shadow. And although the movie seems to end on a positive note, it really doesn't because the doll's head's still there. <laughs> but then also the medical book is still there. She can't escape these things. They have something of hers that is important. Right. And unless you can make a clean break, you cannot leave. Let me put it this way. I don't think there's anything in the movie that suggests that it's not real. And yeah, you can take it that way, but I, I don't see any moment where, like, even Pan's Labyrinth has a moment where the guy doesn't see the fawn. There's nothing like that in this movie. Every, everyone in the movie believes that the djinn are real. That, that speaks about it. 
Even the, the mute kid seems to think they're real. The neighbor thinks they're real. Sheeta thinks they're real. Dorsa thinks they're real. We're never given any alternate perspective on that. I, I think, yes, the movie is a metaphor, but... She doesn't think they're real. And I think this movie really is about madness. Because one mm. of the other metaphors, which is very obvious, is everything's yellow. And that's <laughs> that's a trope that goes back to the yellow wallpaper, the yeah. famous short story about a woman who goes insane in her own house, starts seeing people in the wallpaper. I think Repulsion is even uh, loosely based upon that. And this movie actually took a lot of... Um, inspiration from repulsion and other polanski films hmm. so i think she only starts to believe it because of everyone else's like subliminal messaging to her and that's why everyone else is crazy this whole idea is awful and it's oppressive but you can't escape it and it will affect you no, that makes a lot of sense and i don't necessarily want to call her mad but definitely depressed and anxiety ridden i think there's definitely a lot of like mental instability going around but i don't know about like straight up mental illness however um, David, to your point earlier, the first half hour of this movie, they set up reasons to believe that the djinn aren't real throughout the entire rest of the film, which is, I think, so such an interesting way, and I'll, I'll say what they are in a second, but it's such an interesting way to present this film because then you go through the journey yourself of like, is this real? Is this not real? But I'm told that this could be not real. Like, at what point do you start believing that the djinn are real? I mean, so one of the first things that we hear um, is... She says uh, that she was sleepwalking for so long. And she says that, like, I think, like, it might start up again, you know? And so from then on, I'm like, okay, well, the doll being cut up, that could be her sleepwalking. The tape being taken, that could be her sleepwalking. Her ending up in the apartment is, like, very obviously sleepwalking at some point, you know? The part that I actually think isn't real, although I think it's a trick by the djinn, I think her husband dies pretty early on in the movie. What? In the war. Oh, please, please explain this. I did not see that at all. He might be right. We never see the husband again after he leaves. Right. We only hear his voice over the phone. And the last time we hear him over the phone, it, it's very explicit in that moment that this is a trick by the djinn. That he's telling her how bad of a mother she is mm-hmm. and all right. that. It, it's That's clearly the djinn. I think some of the other phone calls might be as well because the first like big scare in the movie is she wakes up and her husband seems to be sleeping next to her. And then Mm -hmm. she goes, wait, that doesn't make sense. And then it goes under the blanket and all that. But before that, she whips the blanket off and a normal person that moment reacts to it. He doesn't. He stays completely still lying on his stomach like a corpse. I think he's dead. That's sad. I think there's also a phone call that they have where they like break up really like jarringly. And that that could be like bombs dropping on where he was. Yeah. Yeah. And and just in the reality of the movie, I mean, it's wartime. He could definitely have died. And he does disappear. If she's not hearing from him, she she might never know. Mm -hmm. She might never find out. So I want to ask a comparison question. Okay. To me, it seems like there's a very fundamental difference between these movies and how they view fantastical stories. In Pan's Labyrinth, it kind of talks about the value of like escapism through fantasy. But Under the Shadow, it's a way of how we can use these metaphorical tales in which to oppress people. Yeah. And how like kind of delving into that caters to a type of madness. Right. Whether it's not it's real madness or whatever, I'd argue that I think the character's going crazy in the movie. That's what I think happened. I think that's why I don't like the interpretation, because I, I don't like to think that she's going crazy. But to answer your question, um, I largely agree with you. However, I don't think that the fantasy in Pan's Labyrinth is purely not oppressive. I think that it, it largely is. Uh, it's more nuanced it's not clear and i think in both movies the children are tempted by the fantasy that dorsa is not sure if she should listen to her mother or the djinn ophelia is not sure if she should listen to this fawn or not yeah but i argue that you're being colored by your interpretation of the ending of pan's labyrinth (laughs) yes whereas if you are with me and you believe that yes that was the final test then the temptation was 
it circles back to her first story she tells you in the beginning, which I would argue might be the metaphorical inciting incident, even though the inciting incident is when she finds the fairy. The other inciting incident is when she tells the story, because I think that circles back to the ending of the film and that she was able to get the Rose of Immortality without trading her humanity. And in large part, it was due to her not losing sight of who she was as a child through these fantastical stories. Devin, what do you think? I think fairy tales are different in these movies. They represent different things. I see fairy tales as escapism, but but as spirituality in Pan's Labyrinth. Whereas in Under the Shadow, I see it as the religion, the Islamic religion, Um and that's because, like we stated, the jinn are in the Quran and um, the main character shows that, you know, she is maybe not as religious as it as her uh, neighbors are. Um, definitely has more Western values, more independent values. So I kind of see them as two different things, I guess. Did that answer your question? <laughs> no, it, it does. It does. And I, I think it's definitely noteworthy that... Um... You can't really say other movie is blanketly making statements about fantasy overall. Yeah, yeah. Right? But the fictitions that they deal with are these two different things. Yeah, and it's more so in Under the Shadow. I think Under the Shadow is very specifically centered on this is the djinn we're dealing with. It doesn't necessarily bring in any other fantasy elements whereas pan's labyrinth is like there's an entire fantasy world that it is exploring mm. well not exactly because i think uh under the shadow is talking about the way traditions use yes these types of tales mm. in that certain use and i think the other one is talking about the way children and other people can use other tales to view the world they're in rather than to color the way they view the world so one is saying that you can use certain types of fantasy to broaden your understanding of the world. The other one is saying that this is how you narrow it. It's interesting. It's interesting for sure. I have another question for you guys. Yeah. yeah. Hit us. Please. Right? Okay. I think this is a little bit more down to earth. I would like to hear how you guys think either movie uh, compares women's issues. Because I think they both um, mm. very explicitly talk about them. And David in the chat like shut me down on some dumb shit I said yesterday <laughs> when I talked about this. <laughs> Well, give it. I we talked a little bit about it in Under the Shadow, but give us your perspective um, for Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, so that was uh, where Rob was saying, oh, "I think feminism is more a thing in Under the Shadow than Pan's Labyrinth." And I said, "No, I think it's very much a thing in Pan's Labyrinth." Um, most of the heroes of the movie are women. All of the villains in the movie are men, and it, it's this man is going to oppress us. He is going to control the way the women are leading their lives. He is controlling Carmen. He is controlling Ophelia. Mercedes is literally a maid to him. Then there's like this whole sequence when Ophelia has to put on these really nice clothes, just like uh, Jose Sanjurjo. And it's a tragedy when she's her clothes are destroyed. Like, that has to be the thing that she treasures. And she's kind of trying to move away from that. She's trying to assert independence. They're like, no, you have to be proper. You have to show manners. You have to shake with the right hand. What were the other things I said? I, I think largely it's both movies are showing how these places in these time periods were trying to instill gender norms on the women and very specific gender norms, right? So yes. in Pan's Labyrinth, there's this whole deal like girls shouldn't play outside and girls shouldn't be thinking about um, fantasy they shouldn't be doing creative things they should just be doing what they're told and trying to look pretty be like props and in the same way under the shadows she shouldn't express herself she should cover her hair and when she does she's the enemy like what are you doing why are you doing this sure but i think ophelia and pan's labyrinth represents more than women i she represents this this whole side of spain right like the whole um all the revolutionaries represent this other side of Spain. I don't think that they necessarily are just like, this is straight women during this time. Whereas Under the Shadows making a very, very direct statement about how it was to be a woman during that time and like the themes that they explore are about feminism. Whereas in Pan's Labyrinth, it's more, it's 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 broader than that, you know? Like, yeah, it's very clear that there are some um, gender roles 
that they're playing around with. But I, I think to say that it's a feminist movie, I mean, I, it's 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 not a political statement on feminism. I guess it's, I don't see that. I think I think that's where I was trying to come from with David. But when I said I really don't see any, there obviously are some. But yes. I, I think that they're more superficial than that. So I think you're right. Because I think Ophelia does stand for like childhood fantasy at large, right? Yeah. And why it's so important to have this part of your life in there. Because your humanity is directly attributed to the narrative you give the world in fictions. That there is some sort of string between those that Guillermo is very interested in. Yeah, the the gender politics and pans are less the point and more something that is also in there. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Vidal is very much like he wants his child to be a man. He is not even considering any other possibility because that because that's his lineage, but also that's his legacy. And of course, the great moment when they kill him is. No, your child won't even know your name. Oh my god. So how effective do you guys think these movies are just at showing these time periods? I mean, I, I really like how I I knew nothing about either of these places and times before watching these movies. And I like that they make you want to know more. They, it, they introduce me to these other facets of society and other things in history. But how do you guys feel? I really liked how in Under the Shadow it showed how some people tried to go about their own lives, their, their like mm. own routines, while bombs were dropping on their head. Yeah. It really shows you that that side that you don't think about, right? Like you just assume bombs are dropping on the city, everyone's leaving. Like you don't think about those moments of the woman that chose to stay and this is how she's living her life in the apartment that literally has a hole in the roof, you know? Most movies and even the history of textbooks they're always about the people fighting in the wars right and i think in both of these movies we get that other perspective where it's like these are not the people who are fighting in the wars but these are the people who are harmed by them it's humanizing history and i mean what's so brilliant about the genre and what we talk about week after week is just it makes history accessible um we're able to yeah. understand how people view the world during that time because we see it through a fantastical lens through a horror lens we're able to relate to them on an emotional level rather than just not a factual one that we read in the history books you know i mean mm -hmm. so many times we've talked about the 80s and reaganism but we none of us lived through the 80s but yet we feel like we know what it was like to live during that time because we've watched a million 80s movies <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we also just know a lot of people who have and they've told us about it by the way fuck reagan <laughs> <laughs> we almost went a whole episode without mentioning Reagan. Yeah, yeah, it can't happen. It, Just impossible. This, this, this is the Reagan cast. <laughs> you know what's you know what's neat about these? It's uh, well, one is after the war, right? Nineteen forty-four yes. is after the Civil War, so these are like the remnants, right? After everything was done. But under the shadow, it's the very end of the war, but it's still the beginning of when Tehran is being bombed. Mm. You touched on this a little bit earlier, Rob, but the very end of the movie when she finally takes Dorsa and leaves, but we see the doll falls apart. The doll's head is still behind. We see her textbook is still in the, on the fourth floor. The djinn have that. And I love that's a textbook because the djinn may have taken the book, but it's the government that took away her ability to actually use it. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. That's great. The literal idea in the movie is the djinn can now follow them anywhere. Mike, to me, that's also just the trauma of war. They will carry this with them for the rest of their lives. Right. And the war's not over. Well, the the war is actually about to end in the movie. 1988 is. is the year it ends. The year they cease fire. They officially signed an agreement in 90. Anyway. Right. But, but it's showing the textbook at the end, I think, is important because... The, like you said, her own government took the textbooks. So I think the djinn is, it comes along with the war, but the djinn are from her own Persian region. Like it, it's her yeah. own culture that the djinn are from. So I don't think the djinn necessarily represent the horrors of war. I actually don't think they represent that at all. Right. I think they represent the horrors of the suppressive government society. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, if you say that she's gonna, if if she's going mad or you know is mentally unstable, like yeah, that's not just gonna go the fuck away. At the end of the movie, like she escapes the war, she doesn't escape the oppression. 
I think that's what's being said at the end. It's it's very much like the Pale Man. It's the horrors of war, but it's also the horrors of their own fascist regime. Um, although it's, it's it's Iran isn't exactly fascist; it's a little more complicated than that. But fascist for the sake of argument, and it's also the horrors of the religion that is suppressing them. All three, and uh, Ophelia may escape the Pale Man, but she is still punished. Hmm. I want to, well, yeah. I want to clarify. It's it's not the religion; it's the leaders and the politicalness of the religion. Yes, yes, hmm. yes, absolutely. Thank you. So, I think we're ready for my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section, where we rate each film on a one through four bone review scale with half bones in between. Starting us off this week is Devin Shepard. All right. Uh, so, Pan's Labyrinth. I mean obviously a classic masterpiece so beautiful and just direction is gorgeous the acting is phenomenal the production design the makeup the special effects doug jones just all just doug jones i mean why the fuck doesn't he have a fucking oscar for this film (laughs) there were some things that you know fell flat for me but that's okay because it's so beautiful i'm gonna have to give it three and a half bones i think it's it's just a phenomenal phenomenal film um under the shadow really really beautiful oh my god the execution was great the direction gorgeous i love says so much and made it so accessible and was like such a perfect balance of supernatural and drama and uh jump scares versus um intense creepiness which was great the acting oh my god that kid that fucking kid was great um loved all of it i'm gonna give it three bones I loved both the movies this week. I it, Great pairing. Very solid. I very much agree with Devin. Also going to give Penn's Labyrinth three and a half bones. I mean, yes, a few farts do fall somewhat flat. I, I think the toad part is the big one that sticks out. I was like, I don't really get the point of this. Um, also, I think that the CGI in that scene specifically is dated. Uh, but thankfully, they don't rely on CGI exclusively throughout the movie, and all the practical effects look freaking amazing. It, it just, it's, it's just, you keep thinking about it. It stays with you. There's so much to unpack, and it's, just, it's, it's really hard to take any problems with it when it's like, it's so fucking beautiful and fantastic. And also, Mercedes is my fucking hero. <laughs> Mercedes is like the most badass person ever i fucking love her fuck yeah so yeah three and a half bones and then under the shadow i've been raving about this movie for years i'm so glad that i finally have people to talk about it with because i fucking love this movie so much i love everything about it um i i it's one of the best horror movies of the past decade as far as i'm concerned the the thing that i want to point out this time because i finally figured out why it was working for me is why the jump scares in this movie actually work and i think the reason for that there's not really any music in the movie there's a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end but other than that every single scene it feels like there could be a jump scare and you can't tell which ones are which it's it's there's no clear build-up you're just you just become tense the entire time i've seen this movie a few times now and one of the freakiest jump scares in the movie it's, she's standing by a window and a hand jumps out at her it's terrifying because she's also looking in that direction she doesn't see it it's amazing but watching this again there's a scene right before that where she's also at the window in a very similar framing and it's not the scene with the jump scare but watching i just got so tense it's like is, is this where that happens i thought that came later what's happening and i just freaked out it, it it really holds you in suspense. It's fantastic. I'm giving it four bones, which I haven't given a movie four bones since Ready or Not. I'm giving this four bones. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so I'm going to give Pan's Labyrinth four bones. Ah, I think nice. it's my first four bone review. Did I give The Thing four bones? Okay, it's my second four bone review, and I stand by that. The Thing deserves four bones also. This is a masterpiece. I think it's Guillermo's best movie, and I like every one of Guillermo movies I've seen. And I might have seen them all. I'm not sure. It's it's almost not worth saying how beautiful the movie is because it's so beautiful. You can just look at a single frame. The score is fantastic. The acting's fantastic. It's so brutal and 
heartfelt. Every time I watch it, I get choked up at the end. I love what it has to say about society and stories in general. The costumes are unbelievable. I, everyone should watch it. Even Roger Ebert gave it four stones. Four, four bones. Four stars. <laughs> four what the hell did he do? Roger Ebert four graded stone. on a bone system. Fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he grades on a bone system now, even. Post- oh, no. Wrong. <laughs> that sounded so much worse than I intended. Jesus. Okay, cut that out, please. No. No. Uh, okay. Uh, under the Shadow. I think this is the highest rating I'm going to give movies this week. Uh, three and a half bones. I think it's a near perfect slow burn horror film. I, I can't think of another slow burn horror film that is this perfect, that goes this slow. Because if you notice, almost none of the ghost action happens to like the last like 25 minutes. And it holds out so expertly, other than the oil, which I will grant you metaphorically makes a lot of sense given the geographic region. It's just creative and cool and scary. Um, and this, this time period of the Iranian Revolution followed by the Iran-Iraq War and the trench warfare and just all the horrors of it and the oppression of just feeling like it, it was almost a sort of modern society for women. There were a lot of economic disparities and stuff that probably caused the revolution as much as the sentiment towards Sharia law and other uh, is Islamic church and state uh, meldings. But it, it's hard to say that they came out on top post-revolution and pre-revolution and that just like you know tears my heart on my chest i hate it yeah this movie gets three and a half bones i think wow. it's very important for people to watch this is definitely the highest bone readings we have given on this podcast so far yeah wow so that wraps it up for this week guys uh, i hope you enjoyed the podcast please hit us up on cadaver dogs pod on all our social media platforms and let us know what movies you'd like us to review next time you can argue with us tell us we're wrong and it's not nearly as good as it was and perhaps you agree with the movie studios who thought it should have been originally shot in English. Ew. Oh my god. <laughs> Until next time. Baby. Obey me. Obey me, baby.